0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for November 22nd, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Auditing by the RACs, the MACs, and the Upix is rampant, creating a tsunami of Medicare audits. That and other stories coming up. Today we continue our exclusive series on how some auditors are secretly manipulating data to increase extrapolation to get more money from providers. Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach has details on this explosive development. We'll also hear from legislative analyst Matthew Albright, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser.
1: Now
2: here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the program host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we are monitoring to see if Minnesota will declare a crisis standard of care, that in light of the upswing of COVID-19 cases. The Minnesota Department of Health on Friday had reported more than 1,400 hospitalizations with infections continuing to accelerate this as Thanksgiving approaches, bringing people closer together. In the meantime, the U.S. death toll from the deadly coronavirus now stands at more than 771,000. And as you heard, we continue our exclusive series that reveals how auditors are removing zero-paid claims from the universe of claims to be audited. Rack Monitor Investigator Ed Roach is standing by to conclude his three-part series. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch.
1: Well, good morning, all, and good morning, Donna, at Northwestern. I often talk here about the many payment programs that have been developed by Medicare to try to move from pay for volume to pay for value. And in general, these programs usually result in only one winner, the Medicare Trust Fund, which ends up paying out less money. Well, last week, a study came out looking at the results of the oncology care model, where oncology practices were paid an incentive if they provided specific patient-centered services and lowered the overall cost of care. Well, this model actually resulted in higher overall Medicare payments. But the conclusion that was most touted was that they saw no decline in the quality of care. The editorialists actually called this noteworthy, noteworthy, stating that the biggest concern was that oncologists would cut back on necessary care and cause harm going to be very interesting to see what happens with the radiation oncology model that's starting in 2022, which has the same purpose. Now, moving on, last week I received an interesting email about a recent webinar on observation billing that I did. Now, if you listen to that, you'll recall that I discussed how to bill observation hours for a Medicare patient where their status was changed from inpatient to outpatient via the condition code 44 process. Well, this person listened to the webinar, went to their finance staff, and checked to make sure they were doing it right. And it turns out they weren't. They were preparing their claims incorrectly. Now, I'm the first to admit the process of preparing a claim for submission to Medicare is beyond complex. And I honestly don't know how they do it, despite having read the first few chapters of the Hospital Billing and Coding Guide for Dummies. But I do know a few of the rules. So here's the problem. By incorrectly reporting observation hours on the claim, they may have received improper payments for those patients. Recall that if a patient has eight or more hours of observation, the hospital is paid the observation comprehensive APC for the stay. If it's less than eight hours, you don't get the observation APC, but you get paid individually for the other services using the indecipherable hierarchy of status indicator codes. And of course, every patient's different, and it's really dependent on what testing was done. But in general, the outpatient stay with at least out eight hours of observation pays about $1,000 more than the same stay as outpatient without eight hours of observation. Now, in this case, I sent the person the manual reference to support my recommendation, and they're going to talk to their billing department. But as I thought about it, I wondered, well, now they know they've been doing it wrong I'm certain they're going to change their processes going forward, but what about all the claims they have already submitted with the incorrect information? Now, that's an answer I just don't know what to tell them. So I've asked David Glazer to address this, but you're going to have to listen to our episode next week for his answer. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Hello, happy RAC Monitor Monday. If you receive a letter from CMS or your State Department terminating your Medicare or Medicaid contract, would that affect you financially? I ask this rhetorical question because providers' rights to a Medicare or Medicaid contract or to reimbursements for services rendered is a split in the circuit courts. Thankfully, I reside in the Fourth Circuit which has unambiguously held that providers and recipients have a property right in reimbursements for services rendered and a Medicare and Medicaid contract, and that consumers have the right to freedom of choice of provider. However, if you live in the Eighth Circuit of Appeals, I'm sorry, you have no rights. Usually, when there is a split decision among the circuit courts, the Supreme Court weighs in, but it has not. In fact, it declined to opine Timing is everything. A Fourth Circuit Court of of Appeals decision giving providers property rights requested the Supreme Court to weigh in and finally end this rift among the circuits. But since Justice Ginsburg died on September 18th, 2020, the Supreme Court declined to review the Fourth Circuit decision on October 13th, 2020. Justice Barrett was confirmed by the Senate on October 26, 2020, and was sworn in on October 27, 2020. So the certiori was denied, I assume, due to the vacant seat at the time. In 40 states, managed care manages Medicaid. The contracts they write are draconian, saying that either party may terminate at will for no cause, but for convenience. Termination at will is all fine and good in the private sector. However, Medicare and Medicaid are highly regulated, and when tax dollars and access to care are at issue, property rights are created. In North Carolina state court, against the judgment of the Fourth Circuit, a 2021 unpublished case determined that providers have no property rights to a Medicaid contract and that an MCO can terminate at whim. Unpublished decisions are supposed to carry no weight. Unpublished decisions are not supposed to be binding. But in a strange turn of events, our state administrative courts have rendered in violation of the Fourth Circuit and administrative case law that the termination at will clause in the MCO contracts that a provider is forced to sign is enforceable. These were new judges and obviously were not well versed in Medicaid law. Both came from employment law backgrounds, which is completely different from the health care world the upshot if you have managed care companies in charge of your medicaid or medicare contracts review your contracts now is there a termination that will clause because if there is you too could lose your contract at any time depending on where you reside you may or may not have property rights in that medicare or medicaid contract this is an issue that the supreme court must decide too many providers are getting erroneously and discriminatorily terminated For no reason and given no due process. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks,
2: Nicole, very much. That was Health care Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up in about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Ellen Figsandwick, David Glazer, and Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach, who is standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's November the 22nd, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your
0: organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. Outpatient and inpatient coders, billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now, envision one place where you could satisfy all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time with any device. For one affordable price there is such a place it's the medlearn media resource center get unlimited access to every medlearn media resource contained in the libraries of medlearn publishing icd-10 monitor and rack monitor all from one convenient location view content whenever it's convenient for you from any location on the device of your choosing it's the medlearn media resource
2: center subscribe today Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning?
4: Good morning, Chuck. I'm kind of going unrisky this morning, I guess. So in the last few weeks, I've been fairly critical uh, of new government regulations. I've expressed frustration about the new shared visit policy. And by the way, Rack Monitor is going to be hosting a webinar on that Tuesday, January 18th, where I'll walk you through the new shared visit guidance and also the Incident 2 rules, but I digress. I've also ranted about the No Surprises Act, and I'm gonna digress again, but I will mention we're doing a webinar on the No Surprises Act December 9th. Well, today, I wanna flip Shakespeare by saying, I come not to bury the government, but to praise it. On November 12th, CMS issued a final memo on guidance about situations where hospitals are sharing space or co-locating, sometimes they even call it commingling, with other hospitals or healthcare facilities. To find the new memo, you can Google QSQ-19-13. That's qsq nineteen thirteen. You may recall that on May 3rd, 2019, BMS released a draft memo on the topic. The draft caused a stir because it suggested that shared clinical space was problematic. The memo raised concerns about patients from one organization passing through a shared hallway that went through the clinical space of another organization, indicating it might jeopardize the hospital's provider-based status. It also contained discussion about the perils of shared staff, including the idea that having an employee work for two healthcare entities could once again jeopardize both organizations' provider-based status. The memo followed on the heels of a couple of troubling situations, one in Indiana and the other in Montana, where hospital surveyors seemed to apply invented standards as a basis to challenge a hospital enrollment in the Medicare program. In the ensuing two and a half years, people have often wondered how to approach situations where a hospital shares space with another hospital or with a physician clinic. Well, the new memo is radically different from the draft. I would say it's radically better. In fact, we won't be having a webinar about it because it's so straightforward and logical. The language about categorical, the categorical obligation to maintain clinical space separate, or to keep it separate, has been deleted. Most of the discussion about shared staff met the same fate. Instead, the memo lays out a basic principle. A hospital is always responsible for complying with the conditions of participation. If you share space with another hospital, and that hospital does something wrong, you may suffer the consequences because both parties are jointly responsible for the shared space. If a maintenance problem in a shared area means that one hospital is out of compliance with the conditions of participation, the hospital sharing the space can receive the same citation. That's true even if the first hospital agreed it was responsible for maintenance in the shared space. As I read the final memo, I thought its basic principles were both logical and fair. The arbitrary focus on hallways, the illogical claim that employees could never wear two hats, those are largely gone. I redlined the final memo against the draft, and if you'd like a copy, please shoot me an email. So Chuck, John Waite, formerly of The Babies, sings about change. With the challenges of the last 18 months, it's pretty easy to be so unhappy with the way that you've been living. You may think that some things ain't ever going to change, but as this memo shows, that pessimism isn't always justified. It doesn't
3: matter who you are, it's all a shame. What's in your heart change.
5: I don't know if you remember
4: when you got your lucky break, but I think the hospital community just got one. It's really nice to report on something that doesn't require a webinar to explain it. But for folks struggling with the No Surprises Act, and that would be anyone who's dealing with it, we will talk to you on December 9th when we try to explain it. So have a happy Thanksgiving and back
2: to you. Thanks, David, very much, and a happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glaser. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday Legislative Update.
0: The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide.
2: Here now is Matthew Albright.
6: Thanks, Chuck. Last week, we talked about how Biden's healthcare agenda has been slowed. This week, it seems to have a bit of wind behind it. For example, by the end of last week, both the CDC and FDA authorized vaccine boosters for all adults. Previously, the booster recommendation was for anyone 65 and older, adults with underlying health conditions, or adults in at risk jobs. So, Friday's recommendation is. Specifically, anyone 18 and older may get the booster, while anyone 50 and older should get the booster. Now, the feds were a bit behind the ball with this recommendation. Some state and local governments were already allowing all adults to get boosters, including Colorado, California and New York City. And with the intent of providing covid vaccines to low income countries, the Biden administration plans to partner with pharmaceutical companies to manufacture an additional one billion vaccines a year. The administration also announced the purchase of 10 million treatment courses of the Pfizer antiviral pill Paxlovid. Paxlovid has been found to prevent hospitalizations in 90% of COVID cases if taken soon after symptoms appear. And the president signed the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill on Monday last week. The only relevant healthcare related funding in the package was money that expands internet broadband, uh, which would help rural areas with access to healthcare through telehealth. But as we noted last week, more healthcare funding can be found in the nearly $2 trillion Build Back Better package. Just to clarify, the Build Back Better package is the social spending and climate change bill that Biden first announced in April of this year. It's also being called the soft infrastructure package. And on Friday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Build Back Better package, sending it to the Senate. The biggest chunk of the Build Back Better is directed at fighting climate change, mostly in the form of tax credits for companies that use energy more efficiently. For instance, it would switch out all U.S. Postal Service trucks to electric power. But the package, if passed, would also be the most significant restructuring of the social safety net in decades, providing funding for, and I'm going to tick off a list here, free preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, child tax credits, paid leave for new parents, grants for college tuition and affordable housing. In terms of health care, the package would reduce health care premiums at the ACA exchange, expand Medicaid, extend CHIP, and offer hearing coverage through Medicare. Now, like I said, the Build Back Better package has moved to the Senate, but the chamber has a busy December ahead of it. It also needs to pass a defense policy bill and Senate Democrats need to convince the parliamentarian that the Build Back Better package can be passed with a simple majority. Chuck, the Democrats would love to have the Build Back Better bill become law before Christmas, uh, but it's yet to be seen if they have the time or the votes. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zellas. Now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Ellen fink Sandrich. Ellen also has the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Good morning, Ellen.
7: Good morning, Chuck, and happy Monitor Monday all. Last week, I discussed the disappearing OBGYN services across rural hospitals and increasingly disappearing health care across those regions. Over 200 rural hospitals have closed in the last 15 years, and health professional shortage areas are leaving populations without sufficient primary care, dental, and mental health. Yet one aspect of rural care receiving insufficient attention is the expansion of drugstore deserts. Our listeners like the facts, so here you go. Over 41 million persons are struggling to access their prescriptions or other over-the-counter medications. Over 1,230 independently owned rural pharmacies have closed since 2005, 16% of all pharmacies across the U.S. Over 630 communities have no retail store with a pharmacy. 12% of Americans are forced to drive over 15 minutes to reach the closest pharmacy or lack enough pharmacies to meet medication demands. That's over 40% of counties. The age of the corner or independent drug store is eroding. Causal factors related to competition with price savings of vertical mergers from drugstore chains, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical benefit managers. Insurers want low pricing, which hits smaller pharmacies hard. 50% of drug plan reimbursements fail to cover the costs of drugs and their overhead. Pharmacy benefit managers notoriously steer customers away from independent pharmacies to larger and more established mail order or specialty pharmacies. These have lower out-of-pocket costs. The market has gotten so competitive, pharmacy benefit managers may prevent local pharmacies from offering more expensive drugs, which leaves little opportunity for them to make a profit. It's a game of juggling costs. Occasionally, larger prescriptions come in to make up for those losses, but they're getting far and fewer in between. The most vulnerable patients still suffer the most, with increasing barriers to accessing needed medications. Hampered medication access due to ongoing postal delays, yes, these other pharmacies do rely on the U.S. mail. Ongoing digital chasms, limited rural broadband and Wi-Fi access, lack of digital device availability, or proficiency with that use. Let's not forget that with healthcare access more limited in rural areas, a local pharmacist might also serve as the default medical provider, offering some basic guidance. Two major takeaways from this story. First, there is a ripple effect to other pharmacies. CVS plans to close over 900 pharmacies in the next three years, this to expand more lucrative offerings as healthcare services and digital health. One wonders how many brick-and-mortar pharmacies will be left. Second, guess what is another contributor to readmissions? Yep, lack of pharmacies and hiccups with prescription access. Studies consistently show upwards of 20% of readmissions are medication-related, and often due to lack of patient ability to access them. This week's Monitor Monday listener survey asks, How often do patients served by your organization face challenges in accessing or receiving their medications? Not at all. 25% of the time, 50% of the time, over 50%? Do not know? Well, we'll be back with the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author Ellen Fitzsandrick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. So, how do you defend yourself against zero paid claim denials? That report is next. But first, this very important message this is Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of the Auditor Monitor, you'll learn that telehealth will be the most audited health care service going forward. During COVID, use of telehealth has surged, and so will the audits in 2022. Providers need to be aware of which states have parity laws. Some states legally require that telehealth is compensated at the same rate as in-person services. States are about 50-50 in this respect. After telehealth, The two midnight rule, home health and behavioral health care will top the audit targets. Also in this edition of the Auditor Monitor, you'll learn that as COVID regulatory relaxations decrease, clinical documentation denials are expected to surge. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Subscribe at the Rack University Bookstore today and start receiving your own edition
2: of the Auditor Monitor. Once again, Helen pink
7: So, how often do the patients served by your organization face challenges in accessing medications? Well, about 4% of our listeners said not at all, but uh, as we know, the devil is in the details. Close to 16% said 25% of the time. Also, about 15% said 50% of the time, and about 3% said over 50%. Now, in response, and I'll cut ahead to Judith's question about how those CVS plan closures affect this, those 900 pharmacies will be brick and mortar, leaving even fewer pharmacies available for uh, patients to access their medications and, well, expanding those drugstore deserts even further. Back to you, Chuck. We continue
2: our explosive series that exposes for the very first time how unsavory auditors are using zero-based claims to increase extrapolation. Here now with part three of this exclusive series is Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed.
5: Uh, hey, Chuck. How are you? Let me just review the zero-paid claim situation and then discuss four steps you should go through to mount a defense uh, against this practice. So first of all, zero-paid claims are any claim that are submitted and then not paid, regardless of the reason. And at least 12 parts of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, the PIM, uh, say specifically that you need to have zero-paid claims considered during an audit. For example, Section 8432 says that removing zero-paid claims is a direct violation of Chapter 8 of the PIM. The screening out these claims is a crooked practice because what it means is that it, during the audit, the provider can only be charged more in the extrapolation for claims that are rejected, but claims that were not paid, that should have been paid, can never be considered. Therefore, the extrapolation number can only go up and never down. And that's really not fair. Now. To mount a defense against this, it's tricky because there's a well-known part of the PIM, which I call the get-out-of-jail-free card. That's 8411. And what it says is that failure by the contractor to follow one or more of the requirements in this chapter should not be construed as necessarily affecting the validity of the statistical sampling or extrapolation. What that gobbledygook means is that the... um, Uh, auditor is allowed to violate parts of the PIM and it may or may not be enough to throw out the extrapolation. It gives them a a way of violating going around the requirements. So here's what you have to do. Step one is you should detail all of the PIM violations in the situation. Usually this revolves around poor documentation on the part of the uh, auditor in explaining what they did And the the simple test for this is whether or not a third-party statistician can reproduce precisely what was done, whether or not all the formulas were shown, and so on. A large amount of violations will be found uh, when you do this. Step number two is to find all the zero-plate claim references in the PIM and document those and show the judge that this is an important issue. Step number three you have to verify all the zero-paid claims. The problem here is that the files that come from the auditor will have all of this information hidden. So you, you're going to have to go back to the original records of the provider itself to dig up these claims. You would not want to be making this argument if there were no zero-paid claims. But if there are, you need to find them and understand how many there were. Step number four is you need to model the effect of 0 paid claims on the extrapolation. This is a requires a statistician. It's a it uses sophisticated mathematical skills and modeling. But you can show the um, the ALJ that not only is the PIM violated, but it actually makes a significant difference in the extrapolation. So that's what you have to say. You have there are two parts to the argument. One, there are a large number of violations of the PIM, and number two. Uh, This practice has resulted in a a quantifiable difference in the extrapolation, and that's about as good as you can do for this uh, defense. Thanks very much. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach. Ed was calling in from New York.
5: And that's going to be a wrap
2: for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Finksandrick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go all of us here at Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor wish you all a very pleasant and compliant Thanksgiving. There won't be a Rack Monitor news this week, but we'll be back here next Monday, November the 29th. In the meantime, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. Monitor
0: Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.